Good morning and Merry Christmas. I'm not completely done with Thanksgiving, but, you know, it's got interesting memories. Christ's Mass. Christ is coming. It's time to begin really, really celebrating. I can't wait. So we will uh, kind of enjoy it together. Thanksgiving. Family, friends, food, football. Some of us are happy, some are not. A lot of things to celebrate. Most of all, it's memories. Now, I don't know about you, but invariably in our families, there's always been somebody who was a great storyteller. Sometimes kind of monopolizes the conversation for, it's amazing, they can do it for two days. My dad was a great storyteller, not one to monopolize things, but, you know, around the dinner table each evening, something would come up and he'd have a little story. Recently, I heard uh, another version of one of the stories he told a few times. It was about a uh, woman who got a call at work. Her daughter at school had gotten sick. So she takes off from work, goes over, picks her up. And on the way, uh, she calls the doctor to try to get an appointment. The doctor says, sorry, got no time uh, today. I'm really, really full. A lot of things happening. You know, you're going to have to pick up some medication for her. I can recommend this at the drugstore. You can stop and get that. So she went. She took the daughter home. Knew it would take her a little bit of time at the drugstore. And uh, got the daughter all tucked in and uh, feeling okay. Went over to the drugstore, picked the stuff up. She was in kind of a rush. Came out to the car and realized she'd locked her keys in the car. She was frustrated. She was trying to figure out, how am I going to be able to get this home? How can I get into my car? Do I break a window? It's wintertime. It's too cold for that. So she calls her daughter, explains to her what's going on, and says, I'm going to be a little bit later. The daughter says, Mama, I've been watching television in the past, and I saw on TV, for you all, the younger set and stuff like that, this would be on YouTube. But on TV, I've seen where people could take a wire coat hanger and stick it down in the car and just catch the uh, handle, pull it up, and it would open the door. You can get in and go on. Well, Mom was a little bit surprised that her daughter was so streetwise, but she decided she'd try it. So she went back in the store. She got the wire coat hanger. She came out. She tried it, and she tried, and she tried. And she's there and saying, oh, Lord, you know my situation. I've got this daughter homesick. I've got the medicine right here for her. I've got this wire coat hanger. I've got this car all locked up. I need help. About that time, a car pulls up right behind where she was parked. Fellow gets out. Car drives on. She looks at the fellow over there. Says to herself, oh, he's a little scruffy. He's uh, kind of maybe been homeless. I'm not sure, but this is what the Lord sent me. So she walked over to him and said, sir, I have the situation. I've got to get this medication home to my daughter, but uh, I locked my keys in the car. I have this wire coat hanger, but I don't know how to do it. He says, here, let me see if I can help you out a little bit. So he went over, bent it a few times, reached in, put down, pulled up the handle, and uh, opened the door. And she says, oh, my, you are such a good man. You are such a good man. And she says, lady, I just got out of prison this morning. I am not a good man. <laughs> he walks on away, and she looks up, and she says, Lord, I needed something so desperately, and you sent me a professional. We've been working our way through the book of Mark, a delightful, if you will, study. Pastor David and others have shared with us a number of things. And as we have looked back through, we remember that Mark's about 16 chapters long. The first two-thirds, 
maybe not quite, are all about Jesus beginning his ministry. And it starts, rather than with a birth, it starts with the beginning of his ministry. And it explains the kinds of things that he was doing. Uh, it showed him really getting baptized by John, going out into the desert. Uh, later on, it explains a little bit more about how he called the 12. Um, many, many, many people were, they were healed. Healed of the strangest and most peculiar diseases, let alone some common things. He fed a lot of people, 5,000 at one time, another 4,000 at another time, and had plenty of leftovers. And still the disciples wondered where in the world he was going to be able to give them their sustenance at times. Well, anyway, as he moved on, we find that of all things, the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, kind of took a dislike to him. And uh, they started following him around, and they looked for ways to kind of, you know, get under his skin. And, and as he was doing different things, for instance, he healed a paralytic. And uh, rather than just simply saying, be healed, he said, your sins are forgiven. Pharisee jumped on that right now. No one but God can forgive sins. It's pretty obvious. They didn't get it at that point. Later, he was working with a... a, a they were having dinner with Levi just before he called him to be one of the apostles. And the Pharisees look around, all the people who were there, and they go to his Jesus' disciples and say, what's he doing having dinner with sinners? All these tax collectors and things. You know, this man, there's real problems with him. Why are you following him? Pharisees and the disciples of John the Baptist would fast at different times. Jesus' disciples didn't fast. And finally, they went directly to Jesus and said, why are you not having your disciples fast? He says, well, while the bridegroom is with you, you celebrate. They didn't begin to get it yet. The stories go on. There was a time when the disciples were going through a field and they were picking some grain, heads of grain and eating it and stuff like that. It was on the Sabbath. So naturally, the Pharisees jumped all over him for work on the Sabbath. Another time... There was a man with a withered hand at the synagogue, and he healed the man, but it was on the Sabbath. Just, why are you doing these things on the Sabbath? He said, well, the Sabbath was made for man, and is it better to do good or to do evil on the Sabbath? Each time, Jesus had a way when he was confronted of turning things around and having them look at themselves. Rarely did they really see what he was saying because they were so intent on finding some way to take him out. Well, it goes on. Um, as he cast out demons, they accused him of being Beelzebel himself. He was just continually under the watchful eye of, if you will, all the Pharisees. Now, later on, the disciples, um, and this I got to see for real in Turkey recently, when it came time to go to the temple or whatever, the disciples would go through a real, uh, or the, excuse me, the Pharisees would go through a ritual of washing and things like that. I saw the uh, Muslims go through an unbelievable ritual as they have actual little uh, cisterns with several spigots around, stools right there. The guys go, they sit down, they wash their hands. They wash, it looks like they were getting ready for surgery or something like that. Wash their face, wash the feet and stuff like that. I knew that they were really, really into it when I saw one guy reach in, take out his dentures and wash them off and put them back in before he went into worship. But that was the problem. It's a ritual. It's something that man had come up with. And that's what Jesus was trying to point out to the Pharisees. Listen, we follow, if you will, God's scriptures, not man's interpretation and man's laws.
Well, anyway, as we uh, have gone on and, and uh, see that the, uh, why were the Jewish leaders so unbelievably intent, I mean unbelievably intent, on questioning Jesus and finding something uh, that was an issue to him. And the issue that they really got down to was the fact that he was a threat to them. He was a threat because they were uh, afraid of the people who were following him. For instance, the story that we're going to look at today is just two days after Jesus had come into Jerusalem in the triumphal entry. I mean, all the people along the way were lined up, Hosanna, Hosanna. And if they weren't saying it, they were thinking, the king of the Jews is coming. He was about to take over and take them away from, if you will, that which they had built up. They had a really good, the Pharisees had a really good thing going. They had all these people following them. They had a good relationship with the Roman rulers. They didn't like them. They really wished they weren't there. They really wished there was somebody that would come and take out, if you will, the Romans. But at that point, they'd figured out a way to get along just fine. They lived comfortably, even more comfortably than living in Camarillo. Things were really good for them. But they knew that if Jesus continued and they didn't get rid of him, he was going to be leading the people against them. Now, he came in on the back of a donkey. He came in on the one set of clothes that he had. This was the man who was going to lead a rebellion and take them all out. But they were hearing the people talk about it, and so they were afraid of him. Well, anyway, the chief priests and the uh, elders got together, and they decided they were going to find some way, if you will, to eliminate him completely. We're going to look at a passage of Scripture that kind of talks about that today. It comes out of Mark, our continued march through Mark. We're going to go to chapter 12, and we're going to begin with verse 13. You can find it in your Bibles. You can find it on your electric devices. You can uh, see it up on the screen, and we'll be able to read it together. We're going to look at just four or five verses together today so that we can kind of get a feel of what uh, was really happening and uh, what the disciples, excuse me, I continually want to mix up the disciples and the Pharisees, what the Pharisees want to do. Okay, if we can have it on the screen, we'll read it together. Later, they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians. Okay. Let's stop right there for just a minute. We can hold the scriptures there. We can go other ways. Herodians. Do you know what the Herodians were? Followers of Herod. Now, there were four Herods. They were typically uh, appointed by Rome, and so they were there kind of ruling over. But so long as the Pharisees kept everybody in control and in check, they could do whatever they really wanted. The first one was Herod the Great. We've read about him several times. In fact, we will read about him again this month because he was the one in charge when Jesus was born. He was the one the wise men came to. He was the one who said, show me where he is, and I want to worship him. And the next thing you know, he's killing everybody, every boy under two years of age. He had no respect for anything like that. Herod the Great was great only because he was the first one and did a lot of things, built a number of things for them. Then there came Herod Antipas, or Antipas, and he was the one who was, if you will, in charge when Jesus was, if you will, in Jerusalem at this point. Now, not a nice guy at all. He had taken his brother's wife away from him. He, uh, when, um, anyway, he had killed John the Baptist, took his head off of him. 
that kind of a guy that you couldn't trust for anything. He was around when Jesus was going through the trials, and he was one of the people that Jesus went in front of. Two more Herods we see in the book of Luke, excuse me, Luke's writings in the book of Acts. Um, the Herod Agrippa I. Agrippa I was the one that, um, if you will, uh, played havoc and killed off two or three at least of the uh, apostles at that time. Agrippa II was the one who was in charge when Paul said, hey, I'm a Roman citizen. What right do you have to be beating me like this? And he saw to it that Paul got to Rome rather than being left in Jerusalem, where he'd have been killed almost instantly. So the Herods were around, and they were very much in charge. But these are the guys, they're from Rome. Now, part of the reason they were there and part of the reason they were accepted and liked and appreciated and whatnot in, if you will, uh, Galilee and Jerusalem and whatnot is because they had come from a family that um, had lived not too far from there. They'd come from Edom. They were part of the Edomites. Good. You trace it all the way back to the beginning of the Israelites, and you will find that hmm, that's where the Edomites began too, because Jacob and Esau, the brothers, Jacob became, became Israel. In the country of Israel, the 12 tribes and everything that they're dealing with, Esau founded the Edomites. They were like the Hatfields and McCoys. They fought bitterly for years, and there was no love lost at all between them. However, in this situation where you have an Edomite, just simply because he has the power, and we've got Pharisees who are supposedly leaders within, among the Israelis, you know, working, they're working together. This is where it comes out, though, and this is how desperate the Pharisees were to be able to do Jesus' in. Okay, they came to Jesus to catch him in his words. They came and said, Teacher, we know who you are. You are a man of integrity. Slathering it on a little thickly here, okay? You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are, but you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. They didn't define truth. It would have really been interesting to hear a discussion between the Pharisees and Jesus about what truth was at that point, but is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? Should we pay or not? Okay, there is so much behind this because the Jews absolutely hated that tax. They were having to pay to Caesar and they were having to give their money to keep his, if you will, kingdom going on. The Herodians, on the other hand, you know, if Jesus was going to go the other route and say, oh, forget the, the, the tax or pay the tax, or whichever way he went, either the Herodians or the Pharisees would be down on him. If they were not to pay the tax, the Herodians would say, take him before the Romans. We're going to get rid of him now. He said, pay the tax. The Pharisees were going to say, Take him before the Sanhedrin. We're going to get rid of him now. Let's read on. It continues. But Jesus knew their hypocrisy. It wasn't a compliment at all. It was just hypocrisy. Why are you trying to trap me, he asked. Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. They brought the coin and he asked them, so whose image is this and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then Jesus said to them, give to Caesar what is Caesar's 
and to God what is God's. Now that sounds so simple, easy. Give to Caesar what's Caesar. You find these little coins. But notice it was not just his face on the one side, it was an inscription on the other side. And the inscription basically said, Augustus, no, Tiberius Augustus Caesar, son of the divine Augustus. So even on every coin that they had, they were worshiping, if you will, the Caesars in Rome. No wonder that none of the Israelites, and especially the Pharisees, wanted to be paying, wanted to be handling even this money. Because in a sense, they were acknowledging, if you will, the place of deity of the Caesars. Well, let's have a little bit of fun. How well do we know the uh, pictures on our own money? Anybody remember whose picture is on a penny? Lincoln, very good. How about a quarter? Washington. Oh, it gets a little tougher. Now has some fun. Nickel. Jefferson, who is slowly but surely sliding off the face if you look at the new ones. It's only half of his face is on it. Okay, how about the bills? Who's on that $1 bill? Washington. We usually refer to it as a Washington. Okay, how about a $2 bill? Jefferson, very good. It takes somebody who's been around and maybe even has one in his hip pocket just in case. $2 bill won't do much of anything anymore. Maybe buy a bottle of water. So we'll go from there. Five? Five? Lincoln? Get your fives. Check them out. Now here's, have some fun. A 10. Hamilton. All right. This is the fun part. Um, how many of you are aware of the fact that there's a strong movement afoot to uh, change the picture on the $10 bill? And they want the first woman to be pictured on a bill, and they want to do it on a $10 bill and move Hamilton off. Anybody aware of that? Oh, my goodness. Okay. Uh, now, do you have any idea who the woman was that they recommended? This is my favorite part. Similar, similar. Harriet Tubman. Harriet Tubman was known for her work in the Underground Railroad. Okay. A couple of the other uh, people recommended were Eleanor Roosevelt. That makes sense. Uh, Rosa Parks could be. My favorite, the most intriguing one, was the first woman uh, Cherokee chief. Willa Mankiller. Now, they've changed their minds on, on uh, the timing of this. It was going to be 100 years after, if you will, the women getting a vote and all those kinds of things. And they've also changed it to the $20 bill. Because Hamilton has become so popular on Broadway that you cannot take his face off a $10 bill. So we're going to put Harriet Tubman on a $20 bill. And we will take, who's on the $20 bill? Jackson. And we'll put his face on the backside. So much for our money and the kind of things that we do. Okay. What I really want to do is have you look at the, the final phrase there where it says, give to Caesar what is Caesar, but to God what is God's. What is it that we are expected to give to God? Not just the fruits of our harvest, but as the, it will say up here, everything. 
Everything we have came from him. And he simply asked for everything in return. Now, he's loaned it to us. We are stewards. We're to take care of it. We're to do a good job with it. We are to respect it. We are to help it multiply, be fruitful, and things like that. But everything we have has come from him, and everything belongs to him. In addition to that, we have oftentimes had it summarized as our time, our talent, and our treasure. And we look at those three. We look quickly at treasure. We've typically said, well, 10% goes back to the Lord. But everything really belongs to the Lord. We talk about our talents. Whatever it is that God has given you to be able to do, to be able to understand, he's asking that that be used for him. Not a separation of what's sacred and what's secular, but everything we do, do to his glory. And then the one that's so common to everybody that we cannot debate or argue about what's right, what's wrong, what's good, what's bad, what's best, what's most, what's least, time. We all have the same amount of time. And how do we invest that time? I appreciate, if you will, uh, a long, long standing musical, uh, movie, a few other things. The Fiddler on the Roof. Remember Tevye? Tevye was the uh, old milkman, had six or seven daughters. And he's kind of the focus of almost the entire show. And he's walking around with his old lame horse and his cart, and he's got a milk route. And my grandfather, my father, my dad insisted that I milk cows and have a milk route and stuff like that, so I feel very close to Tevye. But what I liked most about Tevye was all the time that he was walking around with his old lame horse and going different places, he was continually talking to the Lord. He was talking about one of the daughters who was having a problem, one of the daughters who was going to get married. He was talking about the lame horse and what was he going to do to be able to fix the horse or take care of it. And then he would have a customer, and he would go over, and he would meet the customer, and he would work things out with the customer and stuff. And then he'd go back, and he would continue talking to the Lord as he's walking around, just continually conscious of, focused on the Lord. Now, in no way do I encourage you to be so heavenly-minded that you're no earthly good. But I think there's a place for us to be thinking of the Lord on such a regular basis that it comes so naturally to us. I learned these lessons in a a very, very difficult way. Many of you are well aware of the fact that I spent some some time, a couple, three years ago, in the hospital. It was shortly after I retired. And the first couple of weeks, I I have almost no memory of. Some of you visited, many of you prayed for me. But I was in a situation where it was almost like I had gone back into the womb. I had tubes going in my nose to get air to me. They'd put a pacemaker in me to keep my heart beating. They had tubes going into me to feed me. They had tubes going out of me to get the stuff out of me. It was like a uh, just an existence. But as I began to come out of that, I was so conscious of God being there. It's not as though I had an out-of-body experience and could look back and see, but boy, was I conscious of God because I couldn't do anything on my own. And that's when I began to understand what God really expects of us. Give back everything that he's given. I don't deserve to be here. If you go back and go through my life and begin to add up, and if it was a matter of weights and balances and good and bad and stuff like that, I wouldn't be on this earth. But God has asked me to come back and to be able to share some of the things that he has built into my life in the way in which he has changed some things. And I'm here today to share that with you. 
So when it talks about, yeah, give the denarius to Caesar, but give to God what is God's, it's a matter of an attitude. Am I really desirous of giving everything to him? Am I so humbled that I think nothing of what I can do or how I can do things or what, how I can even help other people, but just simply to exist? I do not wish or pray that on anyone here except for you to mentally, emotionally, spiritually get to the place where you can just totally let go and say, God, you have given me all. I give everything back to you. There are a couple of verses of scripture that have been very, very meaningful to me. We're going to go to uh, the book of Philippians. You'll be able to see one of the verses up here. I'm going to read a little bit more. Many of you are well, well aware of Philippians 4. You read it in times of trouble. You know, it starts out where uh, in verse 4, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. But I'm going to look especially at 4, 6, and then 7 and 8. In 6, it says out of the New Living Testament, don't worry about anything. One of the things I did learn in the hospital is if you have enough time to worry about something, you have enough time to pray about it. I hate to use the phrase, but that virtually haunts me. And so each time I start worrying about things, and oh, am I good at it? I could be a professional worrier, but it comes back to me. No, 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 no. You have time to pray, not just worry. Instead, pray about everything. And it goes on in verse 7. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Guarding my heart's taking on a whole new meaning when I have a pacemaker just to keep it going. That's the physical heart. But the heart, the inner being of me, the inner being of you, God will give us peace and he will keep us going. And then verse 8. And again, I'm going to go back many years to uh, the days of the Living Bible and when many, many verses out of the Living Bible were put into choruses. And one that I loved and, and changed me and changed my thinking in a lot of ways, it's think about things that are good and lovely. Oh, by the way, this especially applies to those people and those things around you that you do not particularly like. Think about things that are good and lovely in them. Think about things that are pure and true. Oh, my goodness, in this world in which we live, excuse me, in the world in which I live, there are so many things that will take my mind in so many other directions except pure and true. Think about things that are pure and true. Dwell on the fine, good things in others. No matter how good, how bad they are, no matter what they've done for you or against you, think about the good things in them because God put it there. God created them in the same way that he created you. Then the chorus goes on, and be glad about it and sing for joy. And be glad about it and sing for joy. Well, I want to leave you with uh, one other verse. It comes out of 1 Peter. 1 Peter, again, it just simply reminds us to leave all of our worries with him because he cares for you. He cares for you. He wants to relate to you. He wants to talk to you. He wants to have that kind of relationship that Tevye had. He wants to be able to know where we are in our thinking, in our heart, in our being at all times. 
even in the midst of us doing some of the most, excuse me, in the midst of me doing some of the most ludicrous things, he's still there and he's still anxious to talk to me. He's all the time saying, are you sure? Are you kidding? No. Yes, you understand well. Okay. Well, if you yourself have never asked Jesus to come into your life and to be able to change your attitude and change your focus and things like that, I urge you to do that today. I urge you, if you have, if it's a time of renewal, to be able to uh, renew and, and just ask him to give you that kind of a focus so that you can keep your mind on him, so that you can be just as thankful as that lady who found, the, if you will, the professional to help her. She was hallelujah. And you can be too when you realize all that God has put in your life and has provided for you in so many, many ways. Well, God has given us an opportunity to share together, and, and I think probably we will all remember that the greatest value of our money is not the numbers on it, but it's the phrase. On virtually all of our paper money, it says something about the U.S. of A. and the Federal Reserve. But also, on all of our paper money and all of our coins, it has the little phrase, in God we trust. And in this day and age, when you look at a penny and realize what it will or will not buy you, you uh, very quickly can appreciate the fact that that phrase is worth much more than the copper and the penny itself. In God we trust. Take the time. You know, carry a little money with you now and then. You can feel it in your pocket. You take it out, you look at it. You find where that phrase is on the different coins. In God I trust. The irony of having that on our money. Too many of us have been too inclined to trust what we have in the bank or accounts or whatnot, rather than in God we trust. Let's pray together. Father, you are so good. You have provided so much, such abundance, not just of things, but of people, of friends, of family, of the ability to love. Thank you for the opportunity that we have to share some of this love with others. But now, together, we ask that you will give each one of us special guidance, a special calling, uh, a special understanding of how you are there walking with us already and how you want us to be responding. We really do want to be known as your children, and we want to be able to have that just ongoing comfort of feeling, let alone knowing, your constant presence. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.